Hello, I'm Paolo Rocco, and you're listening to Reprint, brought to you by the Temple News, your in-depth look into the stories you need to know about. This week, I speak to Editor-in-Chief Fallon Roth and Sports Editor Declan Landis about the discrepancies in how Temple men's and women's basketball is promoted to fans. Then I speak to News Editor Sydney Rochnick about student feelings on course material costs. Declan and I were first talking about this story like last month. It was just kind of in passing in the newsroom because... I don't know, we were just talking about how good the women's team has been, to put it simply, but no one was going to the games, and honestly, like, just anecdotally, not as many people cared as as there should have been, and so, um, you know, we got it started. We got started talking about the, the promotions and, and everything, and um, we just kind of really wanted to look into the issue of, like, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people know that people just don't care a lot about women's basketball or as much as they should. And so we kind of wanted to look into how that played out at Temple. Um, And it definitely did. I mean, there was like some pretty vast discrepancies um, between the men's team and, and the women's team. Yeah. And then for for me personally, like Fallon said, it's it's a huge issue, but I didn't know much about what goes on to sort of continue that issue and keep it you know continuing happening instead of somebody putting a stop to it so that's where we got the idea from looking at it at a promotion standpoint especially because that's decided by the athletic department which is supposed to be a direct representation of the university right Um, so we we wanted to look at it from what are they doing to get people in the building and then as we as we saw it really was not as much as it was for the men and it felt like it came from a perspective of earning these different promotions versus just being given these promotions based on feeling almost. And um, I feel like that was the biggest part of the story. And the biggest part of our argument was that the women's team is, is great, but they should not have had to earn all the promotions happening Wednesday night as we film this. Um, it should have been spread out over the year and should have been a, a something mentioned. We, we say that it happens before the year, their sort of marketing plan. It should have been in the marketing plan from the beginning. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you guys, you know, did a great job on this one. You, you dove into the history of women's sports. One thing I thought of when I was reading this is, you know, you look at universities that kind of do a great job with this. Uh, you know, Iowa won, but you do have Caitlin Clark there, uh, kind of one of those stars that they rely on to promote these games and bring that attendance. So... Is this something we're still seeing nationally, that, that inequality, or is this a Temple-specific problem, Pennsylvania problem, whatever it may be? What do you guys think? Um, yeah, it's definitely and unfortunately not just a Temple problem or a Pennsylvania problem. Um, I definitely was thinking about Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese and all these other really iconic college women's basketball players that we're seeing right now, and I was thinking about them throughout the reporting of this story and um I guess honestly it might just go back to you know what Declan was saying before of how like I I feel like a lot of women's teams have to like really prove themselves to be treated as the norm just as just as the men are and so I feel like that you know my personal opinion might just be the the case with those individual schools um and of course they're also just like super 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 talented of course um and so that's definitely you know a part of it as well but um 
you know, what, what's funny that I found out throughout this reporting process uh, through talking to um, Professor Ashley Gardner from the Sports and Recreation Sports Management School um, is that women have been left out of the sports universe since like literally the beginning of time. We we said in our story that like in 7 BC or whatever, like women, I think it was married women actually couldn't even like attend the or unmarried women, one of the two, <laughs> uh, just couldn't attend the Olympic Games. And so when that is like the root, you know, of, of where all this has come from, like it's not, it's a, it's a, a very systemic, deep rooted, um, intersectional, intersectional, multi-layered issue. So it's just something that is unfortunately probably not going to go away for a very, very long time, but it's really inspiring to see like these different strides of, of, um, really cool women, you know, kind of making mainstream news. So, yeah. And like you mentioned, Pablo, you know, there, there are examples. You mentioned Angel Reese Fallon. You mentioned Caitlin Clark. Dawn Staley is a big reason, too. But one of the main reasons they, they've become household names is because of the backing that they get, whether it's on social media, whether it's from their school. You know, they're, they're playing in primetime games on national networks because you can sell how good they are, how good they are at their craft, how incredible of a personality they are. I mean, you think of, of Dawn Staley, how incredible of a coach she is, how electric her personality is you want to see her but you get to sort of a, a group of five school like temple is and they don't have that kind of platform but they're also not given that kind of platform they're not given the resources to create that kind of platform and i think you you see it a little more recently head coach diane richardson she's just an incredible personality and she cares about her team she wants people to come watch her team she the minute she got to Temple, they moved to the Leah Cora Center from McGonagall Hall because she knew that McGonagall Hall would be the selling point of the program. Like yeah. it's you know, you can sell McGonagall Hall, you can't or excuse me, you can sell the Leah Cora Center, you can't sell McGonagall Hall. Like they they wanted to be on these bigger stages and she is doing everything she can to to fight to get this team, the fans that they deserve, the the backing that they deserve, and it's just not being replicated on the other front, whether, you know, for whatever reason. So um, I think that's a big part of it too. Like they, they need to be given these platforms and supported from the university yeah. to, to get to that sort of level where it can become less of an issue. Obviously this is a systemic issue and needs major systemic change, but um, you know, even just a little bit of backing from the university might help to, to change that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, to that point, I mean, how important are these promotional events? What kind of boost are we seeing, uh, you know, given to games that have promotional events versus ones that don't? I mean, the the easy place to point out is the cherry and white or the uh, the whiteout games, excuse mm -hmm. me, the, the dollar dog games all this season for the most part have been for men's games, right? And if you look at a graph we, we did, our, our great data editor, John, yeah. put together some numbers. And uh, you can see that it's, it's almost four times what the women are averaging on those, on those same sort of points in the schedule, right? And that's just such an issue that it very clearly, like, there's a, there's a culture in the city of Philadelphia that just loves dollar dog nights, right? <laughs> Dating from the, from the Phillies games. There's a huge movement now, right? And, and Temple jumped on it, and it paid off. You know, there were close to 5,000 people in the building and they just if they 
had given those sort of same opportunities for the women. And I, I talked to Scott Walkoff. He, he said when they choose the Dollar Dog Nights, it's for when they want a push for fans to get in the building. If they gave that same sort of push for the women's team, who, like we mentioned, is a good team, has electric personalities, people that you want to see succeed, who knows what they could do. And tonight's going to be a big sort of selling point because they, they have really pushed this game tonight because it's very important. It's the one seed versus the two seed for you know a chance at the regular season title. Like That means something. So we'll see how it happens. But if you identify a certain night as getting fans into the building, there should be no reason for right. one team to get that over the other. We talk a lot about, you know, in sports about the environment we play in and like home team advantage conversations like that. You know, what does it say about the women's team that they perform so well, given these kind of challenges with fan turnout and, and the environment they play in? I mean, it's it's resiliency. You know, it's it's the, the fact that when you play in sort of these arenas, you've got to kind of create your own energy. You know, you're not getting that energy and that that. Uh, that bounce back that you would get from a, a normal home crowd that's fired up to see you do something, you know, fired up for you to make a layup in the first quarter that maybe doesn't matter in the scheme of the game, but it gets you energized, right? And and Coach Rich has said as much. She said that fans in the building matter to them. Like the more people that are are giving them that good positive vibe, the more relaxed they are, the more energy they play with, and and that's very important for their style of play and for any team. If you have somebody, really for anything you do, right? If there was somebody sitting over there behind the camera saying, Pablo, you're doing a great job <laughs> at your podcast, which, by the way, you're doing, you're going to be a little more excited to go and, and do your podcast, right, right? right? So just imagine that for a couple more thousand people. I, you probably can't fit them in this room, but <laughs> a couple more thousand people telling you that you're going to feel that encouragement. You're going to feel that excitement to go do what you do. So it's just a natural human instinct to want people to, to get into these buildings to support this team and, you know, just think of what they could do with, with an even bigger fan base, cheering them on, giving them that support, especially in moments when they need it, like right now. Um, it, it would just be so uh, – it would, it would change the complexion almost of this team, you know, and, and they're just having success without it. So. Just to add on to that, I think it was the night of the 21st that the um, women's basketball team – officially reached first place in the AAC because the other team lost, you know. But no one, like, said anything about it until, I don't know, would you say, like, at least 24 hours later? It was, like, a hot minute before anyone said anything about it. And you just know for a fact that if it was the men's team and if that were to happen, that would be incredibly exciting, of course. But if that were the men's team, I feel like there would be a lot more hype you know surrounding that um and so it just you know like Declan was saying it just all comes down to like the excitement and showing people that the women's basketball team is just as much worthy of excitement as the men's basketball team is yeah and and to that point I mean besides the the money putting into it the promotions that are done for both sides are we seeing the same kind of representation when it comes to, you know, shouting out these players on on Instagram or, or social media or, you know, giving them props on campus, whatever it may be. Are we seeing some kind of equality there between, you know, the men's and the women's side? I think players on both teams have, like, reached their own milestones or whatever. And I, just, I feel like there is 
good social media representation for both men's and women's in terms of that. But I think it's just like, I think it's like the games is where you see, you know, the most discrepancies and not like in an individual, you know, yeah. players. So can we can we expect, you know, more equal promotional events in the future, you think? Um, I surely hope so. Uh, I think one of the best parts about working at the Temple News is that our articles are, you know, read by the people that yeah. we're covering and our 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 columns and our editorials in the past have been taken like extremely seriously. And so my hope is that whoever, you know, Scott Walkoff or, you know, whoever is, you know, gonna be working with him to, to come up with a marketing plan for for next year, um, can certainly take our take our advice in stride. Yeah, like Fallon said, you know, we just pointed to an issue that has been prevalent for a very long time now. And if really if athletics wants to to thrive in this, you know, this digital age, this social media age where you can build your own platform very easily, especially with like we said, not not only the talent, the personality on the team. Like people are gonna want to root for them yeah. as long as you give them the platform. I think it's it's fairly obvious that it would be a good decision to invest more promotions in this women's team going forward. You've seen what Diane Richardson could do in two years, mind you. Like this is her her second season, you know, taking over a program that had struggled in the same conference and now they're, you know, leading number one, like this late in the year, that's that's almost unheard of. So the fact that you have this coach that people can get behind, you have these players that people are going to want to root for, I feel like it'd be foolish not to invest more promotional effort and more time and more care into getting this team out into the world. So we, we just hope that that's what happens. Yeah, and even bigger question, I mean, do you think there's anything the NCAA could do on their front to – you know, change this, this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the, it, it comes down to the same thing, right? It's all about the platform, the stage and getting people in the building. And the more that people see how exciting the women's game is, how many personalities and players they could get behind, how good teams are, how good games are. Like at the end of the day, people are just looking for something that they could spend their hard earned money on. That's going to give them sort of that, that give back that, that good, feedback something they can invest time money and love into and women's basketball is just as good as, as men's basketball if not better sometimes at doing that so I just I think um, I think the it's a it's a problem like we said on the national on the global stage and it's very easily fixable with with a little more time a little more care and a little more effort on but on everybody's sort of behalf Now I speak to news editor Sydney Rochnick about student feelings on course material costs. Temple Libraries, they partnered up with Affordable Learning Pennsylvania, which is an organization of academics who are, basically it's their whole goal to work towards textbook affordability for students. Um, and so they were you know, looking for the data on Pennsylvanian students' experiences with having to buy all this extra materials on top of what they're already paying to go to, you know, a higher education institution. So that's Temple's part of that with only 242 Temple students being a part of this survey, contributing to a larger number of 
few thousand from a bunch of other Pennsylvanian schools. And yeah, um, we get to compare how we experience the cost of extra course materials compared to Pennsylvania and some national levels. Yeah, I mean, wh- what do you think? I mean, it's it's a big question kind of, but I mean, why are we so far away from, you know, the state, other state institutions and, and the national level when it comes to this? Why are Temple students feeling the burden more than the rest of people? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think a part of it is that Pennsylvania is the, it's either the 49th or the 50th, depending on where we're at right now, of all the 50 states uh, on how much support we get from the state, the state government, um, in terms of funds. So while other states have these programs in place to use more free resources or to cover financially the costs of extra course materials if they're necessary, which sometimes textbooks and that and the stuff are, um, we are by far one of the least supported states in that aspect. <laughs> um, and you know, there we have a whole industry based on based around textbooks. Um, I don't know exactly how that manifests in Pennsylvania versus other states at this point, but I do know that our state support is very limited. Right. Right. And I mean, there are some good programs that you mentioned um, in the article that Temple provides professors, some grants, good amount of money, actually, to kind of incentivize them to lower material costs. Do you want to touch up on on those, too? Yeah, for sure. Um, The Temple Library has been working on this um, in terms of creating our own free resources and uh, getting teachers really in touch with where these free resources are online. (laughs) It's a great space for that. Um, Yeah, we have the textbook affordability uh, project, which um, any faculty member can apply to and get a a grant of, I think, uh, 1500 to transition from a textbook uh, centered class into a open resource centered class. So just removing that cost entirely. Um, And they can also create their own resources based on that program, but also with North Broad Press, which uh, I think we only have a few textbooks on there right now, but that's a a platform where a faculty member can get money to make their own textbook, and that will be available to everybody else online (laughs) after that point. I I actually had a question about the North Broad Press thing. Um, Are professors then able to profit off of the textbook they make as well with that money? Yeah, good question. It's not um, a thing of royalties, but they okay. get one sum of money at the very beginning, I believe. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Okay, because that's that's something I found distasteful in the past is where I've mm-hmm. had professors that make us use textbooks that they've written and um, yeah. we're told to buy them. Some professors put that money into a scholarship. Some... Not so much, but, you know, that's always been, uh, you know, kind of a grudge I've I've held with professors that do that. I definitely get that. It's, um, it's, I mean, I don't want to exactly <laughs> be rough with anybody on that topic because, you know, I yeah. guess they have to have some sort of source of revenue too. But definitely, if you can also pick the price, it's a little rough. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah, I did like. Um, I thought it was an awesome story though. You you featured um about the professor that worked with with deaf people um mm-hmm. to kind of create uh materials for his class. If you want to touch up on that story. Yeah, that's another uh T A T A P grant recipient um who was, which I think is actually a really interesting one because yeah. it wasn't necessarily being given the money to get rid of textbooks. He was already kind of using free resources, but it was an opportunity to. Um, one, it wasn't something that was offered in a textbook before. So again, it's not like eliminating a cost, but being able to provide unique information um, of a community he's not a part of being a hearing man and being able to center uh, deaf or hard of hearing people in his curriculum, which was about sign language across the world. Um, that's... I mean, he was basically making his own textbook materials and, and centering that in his class. And I think that's a great opportunity. Yeah, no. And I mean, the good thing about that was, you know, of course, the big thing was he was featuring um, people that are deaf and hard of hearing, but also getting perspectives overseas, I believe, and in, in yeah. other languages um, and getting that, you know, knowing that these people had those experiences firsthand, you know, that that's honestly the best learning. Yeah. You know, I, I will say personally, uh I haven't had, you know, to endure horrible costs when it came to test books. Um, I think mm-hmm. this semester I've I've spent maybe $60 in total um, for only one class. Um, and I think that might be a disconnect in, in terms of, you know, I'm a journalism major. We may not receive as many textbooks. For but sure. <laughs> um, yeah, do you, do you have any idea of, you know, what um, school in the university is, is kind of um, taking this burden the most in terms of cost? Mm. Yeah, also a good question because even if you can try to go into free resources, you might have more trouble based off of the curriculum, one that's already there, and the um, field, especially if it's a niche. So I was kind of going into it thinking that probably more science fields, mm. math fields, um, but you know, that they often, this is like, Another thing people don't consider is yeah. that sometimes it's not textbook. It's also the online websites that you have to buy in order to access that, yeah. the curriculum. Yeah, so stuff like Cengage um, especially, and I think we see that a lot from math students. But I, um, I also wanted to touch on, I didn't like put this uh, statistic in the article, but it says, um, it, was, it was a question about how much do you spend on course materials this mm-hmm. term. 70% of Temple students um were spending more than a hundred well wow. in that term. So it's um so it's like not that um students every semester are spending like more than three hundred. I think it's about thirty percent, which is still actually kind of crazy. Um there was that figure, what was the ninety nine percent um stat from the article? Ooh. Yeah, was that, that one was pretty crazy to me. Ninety nine percent of Temple students have attempted to reduce the cost of course materials basically everybody (laughs) yeah no so that's yeah that's that that was really crazy to me um no i mean (laughs) it is a good point right like it's that it one it's like an easy option to not take the full brunt i guess yeah not easy but like we all know it's there so we have to do that kind of digging to get to that point yeah um and you'll see (laughs) the statistic that follows that is 82 percent of find a free version online which pirating is variable (laughs) it's Um, super viable yeah i mean my last question would be um you know what more can the state and the university do to help students out with this burden you think 
Yeah, so that's kind of complicated in the sense that we want to give faculty as much academic freedom in their own classes, and we will maintain that. Um, So the question kind of turns into how do we make it easier for faculty to get to that state? How do we support them if they're having trouble finding that material or don't feel confident in that material or any number of reasons where, I mean, it takes up a lot of time, I think, to change your whole curriculum. Right. So that's where I think the Temple Library support is doing good work, um, just being uh, available as an advisor or offering a lot of these different grants. I think that's great. I will say, yeah, I would love for the state to invest more in higher education. (laughs) And I think if that comes in the form of uh, grants like Colorado does, um, they have a specific um, open educational resource program where they do that. I think anything like that can be great in order to reduce the burden that students take on and faculty members would take on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you have any uh, final thoughts on this? I think it's demonstrable, especially in the interviews that I've done and the data I've been looking at that textbooks are not the baseline of a class. It is entirely possible that students are looking at a textbook and either deciding it's too expensive for them and they cannot afford that based on their standard of living or that it literally won't help them, (laughs) which I think is something I ended up repeating quite a bit based off of different experiences. And then I I put a statistic in here about how many students just don't purchase a textbook. Um, 53% of Temple students said they occasionally or frequently do not purchase a required textbook, which is a majority, which is fascinating. Um, And I think that's really eye-opening. And I think that this gathered information will will hopefully um, encourage faculty to consider where their classes are at in that in terms of that thank you our editors fallon declan and sydney for joining me on this episode and make sure to check out all their work on the temple news website i'm pablo rocco podcast editor for the temple news and this is reprint